The Democrats have to now decide whether they will continue defrauding the public with ridiculous bullshit. And after three years of lies and smears and slander, the Russia hoax is finally dead. So proclaimed President Trump in Grand Rapids, Michigan Thursday night as he began what is likely to be a protracted total exoneration, total vindication tour. But is that the final verdict on Robert Mueller's nearly two-year investigation? All we have at this point is Attorney General William Barr's four-page summary of Mueller's report, revealing he found no prosecutable case that anybody in the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russians in their interference in the 2016 presidential election, and that Mueller made no finding, one way or another, as to whether Trump obstructed justice. But as always, the devil is in the details, and we're now told that much more from Mueller's more than 300-page report will be shared with the Congress and the public in the next few weeks. We'll discuss what to make of the bar summary and what's more to come with Ben Wittes of Brookings and Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. And we'll hear some excerpts from my interview with George Papadopoulos, literally the guy whose conduct triggered the entire investigation on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So the president is feeling his oats, uh, feeling completely vindicated by the Mueller report, which we still haven't seen. There's obviously a lot more to come on this story, (laughs) to say the least. We live in a culture where everything is just totally binary. I mean, either like the walls are closing in, Donald Trump is going to be dragged away in leg chains, or total exoneration. And I think it's important to kind of call out, you know, the hypocrisy on on both sides sometimes. And uh, the fact that Mueller does does not have a prosecutable case on collusion does not mean that uh, a lot of pretty outrageous things happened. And, And I think we need to stay focused on those things. I think everyone needs to keep reporting and bringing the facts to bear. And I think we need to see the full Mueller report. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that in these 300 plus pages in the Mueller report, there isn't going to be a lot that we don't know, haven't seen before, and could be quite damning. I don't want to speculate because obviously the bottom line conclusion is important. The idea that Mueller has not recommended further indictments. If you were watching cable TV in recent weeks, you would not have seen that coming. Although if you'd been listening to Skullduggery, you might have uh, not been quite as surprised. But the idea that on the obstruction question, there isn't a lot more there in what Mueller found. Uh, You know, it seems to me that there are almost certainly is. And there are going to be a lot of headlines when we read the full report. There will be. But I have to say, I am now in retrospect thinking that 
Donald Trump actually was pretty shrewd in how he has dealt with this whole investigation politically. It sounded crude to me, but calling it a hoax (laughs) and a witch hunt over and over and over again. But now that he's got Mueller's conclusion, I think some of that probably is seeping in with a lot of people, not just his most fiery base. But I will, I just want to quickly get back to this kind of hypocrisy idea, because it, actually one of the central figures in this whole story, particularly the uh, obstruction piece of it, James Comey, was uh, interviewed by Lester Holt a few days ago. And he made a really, I thought, powerful analogy to put all of this in, in perspective. It's pretty short, this part. I'm just going to read it quickly. And he says, imagine the Iranians interfere in the election to help Barack Obama. An Obama aide meets with the Iranians to talk about dirt they have. President Obama's national security advisor lies to the FBI and his communications with the Iranians. Then President Obama asks me, Comey, to drop the investigation of that, fires me, and said he did so while thinking about the Iranian thing. Then he invited mullahs to the Oval Office and told them he lifted a lot of pressure by firing Comey. Okay, then then Comey says, who on earth doesn't think the FBI should investigate that? The hypocrisy is revealed just by changing the names. I think that's pretty powerful. I, I love that. And, you know, I guess one takeaway is if all this ends up clearing <laughs> Trump that, you know, we'll have a new normal in which precisely such a <laughs> scenario could play out. And and just one more beat on that. I do think it's, it is important that if Trump's conduct here is completely whitewashed, that it does set a new normal for interference in Justice Department investigations. It's something that Trump clearly did here and something that was considered out of bounds since Watergate for a president to meddle in an ongoing criminal investigation involving conduct about himself and his associates. And, you know, we may be in a new era where that's well, now yes. permissible. And that's going to be one of the big questions, whether the Democrats, whether Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, will really kind of bore in on that question or if they are going to waffle on some of these questions because they realize that, you know, there is no collusion. There politically. Be politically, yeah. and then they start it's focusing on other areas. But I agree with you. This is about the rule of law. This is about right. our institutions, maybe the most important aspect of this whole case. Right. Well, we got a lot to talk about here, so let's get on with the show. Okay, we are joined now by uh, the baby cannon guy, Ben Wittes, <laughs> editor-in-chief of Lawfare, senior fellow at Brookings, longtime friend and colleague of Skullduggery co-hosts. Ben, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks. And it's a big week for baby cannon because this week... The White House formally acknowledged the existence of Baby Cannon. I asking was... you to retire it. Though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware of that. What, how did this? Well, was it, this communicated? It, uh, Sarah Sanders put up that bracket that I guess the New York Post had created, and in a formal White House Sarah Huckabee Sanders tweet. And that bracket, when it mentions me as one of the, you know, villains of this whole right. thing, the reference point is Baby Cannon. Because, by the um, way, we should explain that you used the Baby Cannon on Twitter to anticipate the next big bombshell to, story. To announce. Right? To you announce. Know, when, a, when a new story or a new indictment came out, I would tweet a link to it with the word boom. And yeah. I thought this is 
I am unrepentant about this behavior. I, I, it, I thought it was an amusing way right, so. of announcing the presence of new stories that people should read. And uh, But the people seem to take offense at it. All so. right. Well, before we move on to the substance here, you should know you really made it when Trump calls it fake artillery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm working on that. All right. Yeah. All right. So is the baby cannon retired? No. Okay. The baby, All right. Unrepentant. The baby <laughs> cannon. <laughs> the baby cannon will continue to herald investigative journalism in a haphazard and random fashion, and will also continue to announce major legal developments like indictments and other All right. materials. All right. How surprised were you by Barr's letter summarizing the results of the Mueller investigation? So. Elements of it surprised me a fair bit, and elements of it did not surprise me at all. So the thing that surprised me most was a kind of bald statement of a top-line summary on each of those points with almost no explanatory underlying material. For example, the statement on the uh, Russia conspiracy side could be a reasonable summary of about a hundred different reports. And I don't, you know, looking at it, I really don't know which of those hundred reports it is reasonably accurate, assuming it's accurate, right. which I do, which one it is summarizing. So I do think that aspect of it, that it was a kind of bold announcement of something that I don't really understand what it is, surprised me a lot. The disposition on obstruction had a, a number of elements that were arresting, particularly that Mueller kind of declined to reach a judgment and Barr kind of did it for him. But I thought the underlying action was not especially surprising at all, which is to say that Mueller wrote a detailed report kind of laying this out. And then the final element that I thought was not especially surprising, though everybody seems to be very surprised by it, is that at the end of the day, there were no additional indictments brought on either side. And I found this unsurprising because, among other things, there had been a million news reports, starting with yours, Mike, that said this is going to close without significant additional law enforcement action. And so I actually thought we had had that relatively well signaled. And was but not, not accepted by the cable news commentary. No, no, no. Well, no, you're, you're, you're asking whether I found it surprising. Yeah, right. And I, I actually read those stories uh, and assimilated them into my thinking. And so I didn't find it especially surprising that there was no yeah. grand flurry of Russia conspiracy right. and indictments. As we, at the and end. as we have said on this podcast many times, Mueller was essentially settling all of these cases involving the key witnesses for other indictments that might come. And so if he was going to sentencing with all of these people, right. these cases were effectively over, then that was a pretty clear indication that they I, were not going to be I got to say, I, I am astonished at the legal commentary on cable news that would take every one of these Mueller findings and somehow find a path to more prosecutions when I would read them and say, no, <laughs> you know, he's going to sentencing with key witnesses who, if you were going to use to bring cases against other people, you wouldn't be doing. And it's, you know, we've covered criminal prosecutions for years. That's not the way it usually works. 
each one of these Flynn, Cohen, Manafort should have been a signal that of where Mueller was heading, and yet everybody had their head in the sand and didn't want to accept that. So I don't want to second guess, you know, the sort of your sp- colleagues sp- at MSNBC. Well, or yeah. or other well, you not, know, yeah. other analysts. I, I I mean, I will say that there is a speaking personally. I always thought it was very possible that this could wrap up without a grand conspiracy indictment. And by the way, one bit of evidence for that to me was, you know, highly salient was that the Russia collusion allegations, unlike the the obstruction allegations, generally speaking, didn't touch the personal conduct of Donald Trump himself. And so there are limited exceptions to that, like the Russia, are you listening speech. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking right? of that but, first but, and foremost. Um, right? But generally speaking, when we thought about collusion, we were thinking about activity of campaign staff and often campaign staff of whom, like when Papadopoulos showed up, no one had ever heard of Papadopoulos before, right? right? And so there was always a removal of this from Donald Trump's personal conduct himself, except in some broad sort of supervisory sense. And, you know, I always started with the assumption, look, conspiracy cases are super hard. And I do not interpret the absence of a conspiracy indictment to mean that there's no evidence of collusion in a more colloquial sense. I interpret it to mean it is really hard to bring a conspiracy case and whatever evidence of collusion or what we would think of in historical, journalistic or moral terms as misconduct does not amount at the end of the day to a prosecutable case. Well, I mean, the collusion that we, there is the colloquial kind of collusion. And a lot of people have said that, well, Donald Trump has been colluding with Vladimir Putin out in the open from the very beginning in terms of his policy pronouncements, in terms of his support for Putin, in terms of his taking Putin's side over our own intelligence community on what the Russians did in 2016. But in terms of any criminal activity, relating to collusion. And I guess the two principal ones would be coordinating with the Russians to hack the DNC or the Democratic emails. For which Um, there was never any And there was never, never, in in the two years of the investigation, there was never actually any evidence of that. I mean, there were questions about whether Roger Stone and I guess The Guardian reported that uh, Paul Manafort may have met with Julian Assange, but none of that ever panned out. And that was all about the disposition of emails once stolen, not about coordinating about the theft itself. About the theft itself. And the second one would have been coordinating the social media campaign also. Never any evidence uh, surfaced that the Trump campaign was involved. Always was a viable hypothesis. There was never any direct evidence of any of that. And so the story that could really be true in the Mueller report, and I'm saying could, I'm not advancing the idea that the report will say this, but it's perfectly possible to imagine, consistent with Barr's finding, that what Mueller concludes is, you know, number one, that there was a certain situational awareness through people like Papadopoulos that the Russians had a lot of dirt on Hillary Clinton and had emails. Number two, that there was a lot of outreach from the Russians, for example, at the Trump Tower meetings about releasing such material, and they were receptive to it, and that the Russians 
you know, concluded from these interactions that these were people you wanted to help and so kind of did it. But there was no meeting of the minds of the sort that would okay. be necessary but for where, a conspiracy but where there, charge. But where there was, and I think where there is some tangible evidence of criminal activity, is on the obstruction side. Yes. Now, we know that Mueller, at least in Barr's words, because the facts and the legal issues were complicated, he didn't end up making a recommendation. But that's what we want to ask you about, because that remains, uh, I think, to many of us, the most baffling thing in that four-page Barr summary, which is the fact that Mueller did not come to a conclusion, does not make a recommendation. I have my theories about that. Mike may also, but without tainting uh, uh, this conversation at all. Why do you think Mueller did that? Well, I think there's basically three possibilities within my imagination. I leave aside the fact that there could be others that I'm not thinking of, but I can think of three. The first is the one that a lot of people seem to assume from the letter and I think is, frankly, highly unlikely, which is that Bob Mueller kind of couldn't figure it out at the end of the day. And he, you know, he looks at all this evidence and he looks at the legal arguments and he says, gosh, this is a tough one. And he punts it and basically says, I can't figure it out. I suppose that's possible. I think Mueller is a decisive individual. He's a hard-headed guy who understands the stakes in this investigation. Led platoons in Vietnam. Yeah, he, he knows I mean, how to make decisions. I, I, but, 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 I mean, that's what he did. He well, did not well, make why? a recommendation. Yeah, no, no, no. And, no, no, I mean, so, just on its face, no, but, but, one but did could not... argue this is a dereliction of duty. Okay. He was hired to do something, to be special prosecutor, not to be the... FBI director in this case and just gather up the evidence, he was hired to make a call about whether there was a prosecutable case. And according to Barr's letter, he did not. No. So I'm not defending it. I'm saying one possibility is that the reason he didn't do it is that he just kind of couldn't figure it out and thought it was a, you know, it was too he tough. couldn't make a tough call, well, you, a, a very tough political call. So that is one possibility. And I'm in answer to Danny's question, suggesting that I don't believe that's the explanation. Then what's the explanation? Um, second possibility, the explanation is the one that Barr, the text of Barr's letter implies that Barr thinks, although he doesn't quite say it, which is that Mueller was deferring to the attorney general, that there is a, hey, there are some novel legal questions here. I've kind of consulted with OLC and with just Justice Department thing. And there needs to be a formal Justice Department position The here. Justice Department needs to speak with one voice. Yes, exactly. It shouldn't be made by the special counsel because it's a formal position of the Justice Department. So I'm going to lay it out for you and defer to you, the attorney general, in the answering of that question. If that is the answer, then I agree with you that that is not an appropriate, in my opinion, action for the special counsel to it, take. As far as we know, there wasn't even a recommendation. Mueller could have said, here's what I recommend, but if you want to overrule me, attorney general, go right ahead. Here's my position. Right. If what happened is case one, I think it is a bizarre Abdication. Abdication. If what happened is case two, I think it reflects a misunderstanding of the role of the special counsel. And Barr is misleading the public. If Mueller did make a recommendation and Barr did not reflect that in his letter, right, well, then But we have no reason is... to believe he did. Yeah, that, no, no, would, I... that would be a bald-faced 
I mean, lie. I'm assuming right. Bill Barr is not a liar yeah, here, right. and okay. that that so we're, then we're, we're, we're assuming that Mueller did not make a recommendation. I'm assuming that Bill Barr is accurately describing he, what happened. Right. It's just that what happened encompassed many possibilities, right? If it's so number I'm, two, I think Mueller wouldn't have made a recommendation because his view would have been it would be wrong to, to bar. and I can't box him in. Right. By making a recommendation and then saying to the attorney general, OK, now you have to overturn me. I do think if that's what happened, it raises a question. Look, we have special counsels precisely so that these decisions are not made by the political echelon. Exactly. Kicking it back right. to the political echelon would be a little bit hard to defend, in my view. Look, I spent a lot of time over the past year trying to get and eventually succeeding in getting the Jaworski Watergate roadmap released. And this was a document in which Jaworski faced a question not wholly unlike the one that Bob Mueller has faced in the obstruction department here, which is you have individual evidence implicating the president in felonies. How do you handle that? The lay of the land for a lot of reasons is different today than it was then. But just as a reminder, this is Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor in the Watergate case. Correct. And what Jaworski did is he asked the court's permission to transmit and then did transmit to the House Judiciary Committee a 60-page document, which very bare, spare document that just lays out the facts and doesn't make a recommendation, doesn't tell the Judiciary Committee what to do, and doesn't say, you know, the president committed crimes, just lays out the evidence. Well, let me ask you this. And Under the special... So, so, yeah. so, so hang on. When I read Barr's letter, my first reaction to this was Bob Mueller has written a roadmap and he's done exactly what Leon Jaworski did, albeit in different form with a different because the baseline law is different. The authorizing statutes are, and regs are different. And what he did is he laid this out. He is deferring to somebody, but it's not to Barr. He's basically saying this, we're never going to bring this as a criminal case. This is the president of the United States. We have an OLC opinion that says he's not amenable to indictment. We have numerous questions about the application of the obstruction statutes given Article 2. So what we're going to do is we're going to lay this out for Congress and let a different actor render judgment pursuant to the relevant standards that it applies, which is the impeachment clauses. So and there, that is scenario number yeah, three, and I right. think the most likely right, so let me ask you about animating that. Is thing. Is there anything in the special counsel regs that requires a judgment on criminal activity? I mean, does did Mueller or then the attorney general, have, when Mueller didn't, have to step in and say there either was or was not a crime committed here? I don't think there is anything that required Barr to express a view of the uh, obstruction statute. So why that did he? Because if you're right, and I think it's a plausible theory that this was a kind of roadmap and that Mueller's intention was to have this move into the political realm in Congress, why? I think Barr's language was essentially Mueller leaves it to the attorney general to make this decision. But that may just be an assumption on his part. Yeah. I mean, one possibility is that what I have described is all implicit in the report. And he describes, he simply says, I, you know, for the following reasons, decline to render a judgment. And here I'm laying it out, laying out all the things. And he, everything I'm describing is kind of implicit in what he's doing. Barr reads it and says, 
an underling in the Justice Department declined to issue a judgment. That means it's there for me to do. And he then assumes that to himself. I don't know why he did it. I do think it is. I'm not a particular critic of Bill Barr. I I actually think he's mostly behaved pretty reasonably so far in this episode. I do think that paragraph of the letter really comes off as an op-ed in order that allows the president to claim that he was cleared rather than that the matter was undescribed. And I do think that was pretty unattractive. And and I should point out that we now know that this is a more than 300-page report. All we've seen is a four-page summary written by Barr. We have not seen Mueller's evidence. We do not know how far he goes on the obstruction case as he lays it out. There is a theory afoot that just given the wording itself explicitly saying that Mueller does not exonerate the president means that there is likely some pretty damning evidence in there. There's another indication in the letter that there may be some pretty damning evidence, which is that Barr says that most of the material Related right. to has, obstruction has been is, public, is already public. public. Reports, and right. that implies that there's, you know, some stuff in there that's novel as to the pre- that's new as to the president's potentially obstructive conduct. Well, the, the Justice Department is saying that they expect the more complete report from Mueller to be shared by mid-April. So that's a couple of weeks from now. And so we'll see how much of those 300 plus pages are actually provided to the Congress and the public. I think, you know, the devil's going to be in the details. Yeah, I want to, on this, I just want to say a word to the left-of-center commentariat on this subject. You know, people are operating with this presumption that Bill Barr is acting in bad faith. It's a cover-up. It's a cover-up. And I am just mystified by this. Barr has issued a letter with what he purports to be a top-line summary. He said at his confirmation hearing that he was committed to maximal disclosure as quickly as possible, consistent with his obligations under the law. He has said since in the letter itself that there's 6E material, which would be a felony to turn over to Congress. There's some classified material and there's some pending investigation stuff. It would be completely irresponsible for the Justice Department simply to dump this in the public domain without a serious review. And he's saying he's going to get the review done in two weeks. This seems totally reasonable to me. For now, until we see what is released, how much of the actual wording of Mueller's report. If he produces a document that is a few stray sentences separated by pages and pages of redacted material, then we should all go nuts and (laughs) demand greater disclosure (laughs) of the material. But what he's said he's doing, until he doesn't do it, I don't have a problem with what Bill Barr has promised. All right. Well, we will have you back in a few weeks in which you can either continue to praise the attorney general for his transparency or go nuts with the rest of us. I just just want to say until Bill Barr violates what he said he was going to do, I have no problem with what he says he's going to do. All right. (laughs) 
And now we have from Rio de Janeiro, uh, Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, and who has had quite a bit to say since the Mueller report has been summarized by William Barr on Sunday. Glenn, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell us your instant reaction when you read the Barr letter on Sunday. Well, my reaction began forming when the Mueller report on Saturday was delivered, the closing of the Mueller report with no indictments of the big names that had been long predicted, like Don Jr. and Jared Kushner and others obviously was extremely significant and meant that a major part of the media narrative had already failed. And not only did he close his investigation without indicting them, but also without indicting a single American for conspiring with Russia over the election, which, you know, we can quibble about what the big issue was but for me that was the biggest but certainly it was one of the biggest and and that meant that he had found no evidence to convict even one american for having conspired and then when william barr issued his summary letter that stated pretty clearly that Mueller had not established that there was collaboration in a conspiracy between Trump officials on the one hand and the Russian government on the other, the principal allegation that led to the Mueller investigation in the first place, it seemed like a pretty definitive collapse of this entire story, notwithstanding my fervent view that the entire Mueller report ought to be released consistent with redactions for justice and national security and the like. You have said had a lot to say about the media narrative, and I do want to talk about that in this conversation. But look, a major part of this was the Russian interference in the 2016 election, the hacking and the theft of tens of thousands of internal Democratic Party emails, weaponizing them, using them for political effect, the trolling operation. Do you accept that the Russians did mount a really massive effort to interfere in our democracy and that that was a big deal? So there are a few questions in there. Um, So my view originally had been all we're getting are U.S. government assertions about what happened, namely that not just Russia did this hack, but that Putin specifically ordered it, which is a pretty inflammatory claim to make about a nuclear armed power. So before believing that, we ought to see evidence. And for a long time, we didn't. I certainly was never- And Mueller laid it out in his indictments. I couldn't agree more. So I would still like to see the underlying evidence for it. I don't think, for example, we've still seen evidence that Putin himself ordered it or was involved in the planning of it. Certainly, I know from the NSA reporting that there was a lot of major NSA spying that Obama himself wasn't a participant in or even aware of. There were just general kind of parameters for what the NSA was doing that Obama wasn't even aware of a lot. So I'd still like to see the evidence. But in general, I certainly think there's been evidence presented that seems convincing that it was the Russians who were behind the hack. But no, I don't think it's some grand aberration or grand deviation from how the United States and Russia 
generally treat other countries or treat one another for that matter. Well, I mean, well, the U.S. Look, you, you, you mentioned Obama's not being aware of NSA spying. This wasn't just spying. This wasn't just collection of intelligence. This was an active effort to meddle and influence the election. It was an influence operation. And that is something very different than traditional espionage by foreign governments. Nah, I mean, maybe. I mean, you know. Maybe. The, the, Come the, the, on. It's, no, not, it's I mean, not a small thing, Glenn. It, I, I think it is. I mean, the U.S. boasted of how it helped Boris Yeltsin win the first presidential election after communism fell because they knew that he would privatize Russian industry in a way that would benefit U.S. business. Hillary Clinton definitely funded, while she was secretary of state, anti-Putin protesters in order to agitate against the Russian government internally inside Russia. This is something that these two countries have been doing to one another for a long time. And I think that let's just separate this out really quickly. You have the kind of bots and Facebook ads and the like that even Adrian Chen, the person who broke the story about the Internet Russia, the research agency says was really crude and primitive. And even like this, these phishing links, I mean, they got lucky. This wasn't some super sophisticated thing. John Podesta was an idiot. He clicked on a phishing link that everyone knows not to click on. His password was password one and they got really lucky. So I don't regard this as some kind of major deviation or major operation to undermine our democracy in a way that is unheard of. In the relations of these two countries sounds like the dogs are objecting <laughs> or they were they were cheering you. me on they were absolutely yeah. cheering yeah. me on glenn let me let's go back to uh, the question of collusion and let's set aside whether there was criminal activity that seems to be a, a settled case now were you at all troubled by the trump campaign and then later the trump administration's conduct in any of this and you know, let's start with the contacts with Russians uh, during the transition, with Jared Kushner wanting to use the Russian embassy to have a secret back channel with the Russians, Trump during the campaign calling for the Russians to hack Hillary's emails, Trump continuing for months and months into the first year of his, all the way through the campaign, all the way through, uh, continuing to negotiate a possible Trump-Moscow deal. I mean, all of these things, none of it apparently is criminal, but does any of this trouble you just from an ethical standpoint? Not really. So first of all, one of the main reasons I want to see the Mueller report is because in general, prosecutors do ask that really narrow question, right? Which is, is there enough evidence to convict somebody beyond a reasonable doubt? And the fact that they conclude there isn't isn't an, an exoneration. I think Mueller's mandate here was broader than that. He wasn't just deciding as a prosecutor whether to indict people. He was supposed to tell the Justice Department and ultimately the Congress what happened. So I'd like to see whether his report really simply says... I can't convict because the evidence of collusion doesn't rise to that level where I could secure a conviction or whether he said, as the Bill Barr letter strongly suggests, the evidence doesn't establish that this even happened. And then as far as your examples are concerned, you know, I think Trump, like the thing that actually turned me against this whole Russiagate mania, one of the first things that made me really vehement about it was the reaction to what was such an obvious joke, like such a trolling comment of Trump when he stood before that press conference and said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, it'd be great if you could find Hillary's emails. It's like, that's the kind of stuff Trump says every day. And that was one of the first things that really was a sign to me that things had gone off the track rationally was 
If it were true that Trump and the Russians were collaborating in this really nefarious and sophisticated way, why would he put in his request for the things that he wanted the Russians to do, standing in front of cameras and hundreds of reporters and doing it publicly? Why wouldn't he just use the private channels that he supposedly had with the Kremlin to say, hey, this is the stuff that we really wanted? Because he's Donald Trump. That's why. Exactly. Yes, but exactly. But like that's exactly the same thing that explains the reality of what that comment was. He was trolling Hillary. He was saying, Hey, you know, if you want to talk about Russia and hacking, it'd be great if Russia could find it was just his way of trying to shift back to Hillary's well, emails. It was a right. joke. Yeah, but you know, you know, Barr made the point that uh, in his summary that Trump on the obstruction front, did all this stuff publicly, and that should be, you know, suggesting that that should be some kind of mitigating factor. But he also did a lot of it privately in, in like, dinners with James Comey, where he asked him if he could lay off the Mike Flynn case, uh, and he asked him for a pledge of loyalty. So I don't know. I don't know how, but, but, how far but, but, that but, argument but, but, goes. But let's, let's talk about that. And just to be clear, like, uh, just to make leave no ambiguity, like, I think Donald Trump is, you know, a pathological liar. I've li- I lived in New York before living in Rio for 15 years, and everyone who lived in New York knows that Donald Trump is utterly bereft of any human virtue. I believe that he had all kinds of financial corruption in all kinds of places that to me is more centered in the Gulf, and there's been a lot of great reporting about it. But he ran on a platform of trying to improve relations with Russia, saying we should be partnering with Russia in Syria and not working to remove the Assad regime. He talked about improving relations with Russia to work with them against, you know, what he regards as the threat of Islamic radicalism. So, yes, while he was, about- yeah, but Glenn, while he was negotiating with the Russians for a hundreds of millions of dollar uh, real estate deal. Right. And I mean, I think the reality of that is that nobody, including Donald Trump, expected that he was going to win. I do believe that Trump ran primarily because he thought that it would help his brand. And even, you know, everybody, Nate Silver and all the data geniuses were saying Hillary had a 90, 95 percent chance to win. Nate reduced it to like 75 percent before the election. But everybody else was saying it was basically a done deal. So I think Trump was spending 2016 not preparing to be president, but preparing to try and get himself out of a financial hole and get richer, which is what he has spent his whole life doing. And that's what the Trump Tower in Moscow was designed to do. No one thought Trump was going to be president in 2016, including the Russians. Glenn, uh, Ben has a question for you. So, Glenn, I'm listening to you and I'm wondering, you're describing the media narrative, your argument with the media narrative that has developed. And I'm actually wondering, listening to you, whether behind that is less a factual dispute about the merits of these claims than a pair of areas and judgments where you're simply less offended by the substance of what is known than people in the media that you're criticizing. For So you identify two. One is you are less offended by the underlying Russian activity than a lot of people are, including me. And you're also less offended by the behavior that is known and established by various Trump campaign folks in interacting with the Russians in this period than others are. And so my question is simply, is what lies behind the dispute between you and the people you're criticizing really that they got something wrong? 
Or is what lies behind the dispute that there's just a set of behavior that may have been dramatic in the Mueller report or may be subdued? We know it doesn't reach the level of criminal conspiracy or provable criminal conspiracy, but it just bothers you less than it bothers other people. Yeah, I think that's totally insightful and fair. I mean, I think what bothers me is both. I think the media did get a lot wrong. Like I said, there was a lot of good reporting, but clearly the media got a lot wrong. They misled a lot of people into believing that things were going to happen that just didn't happen. But as to your question, so for example, you know, some one of you guys asked me earlier about the idea that, oh, Trump officials were willing to get dirt on Hillary from the Russians. That doesn't bother me at all. You know why? At the same time that they were doing that, the DNC had people going to Ukraine, working with members of the Ukrainian government, trying to get dirt on Trump and Paul Manafort, which they got. I think that when you're running a presidential campaign and trying to obtain that level of power, if somebody calls you and says, hey, I have a huge amount of dirt about your opponent that will prove their corruption, no one's going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in hearing it because you're a foreigner. Just like you guys as journalists, if someone called you and said, hey, I'm a part of the Russian government and I want to leak a huge story to you about Trump or someone in the Ukrainian government said, hey, I have Donald Trump's tax returns and I'd like to give it to you guys. You're not going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't do una- I don't participate in unethical behavior and I don't want your relevant information. Of course, you're going to say, yeah, give me that stuff. That's what journalists do and that's what political campaigns do. They try and get information about their opponents that help them win and journalists try and get information well, to for the, record, the public. I think, for the record, I think, Isikoff, isn't it true that uh, there are obscure, strange Russians who reach out to you on Twitter all the time wanting to meet with you uh, to get, and, and, and you're pretty wary of them these days? But let me ask you this, Glenn. Do you agree with uh, Matt Taibbi, who uh, wrote in his uh, piece in Rolling Stone uh, last weekend that the media's handling of the Russia investigation was a bigger stain on our reputation than uh, the reporting on uh, WMD in Iraq. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, subject to the caveat that Matt made, that obviously the Iraq war led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and destabilized the region, whereas Russiagate, at least thus far, haven't. Hasn't, <laughs> no small matter. No, no but, but no, but, right. but I mean, but, but I do have to say, like, honestly, like a major part of my posture about this whole matter from the beginning has been the fact that it's really dangerous to raise tensions between the U.S. and Russia and to make it impossible for people in Washington to talk with Russians without fear of being accused of treason because these are countries that continue to have nuclear missiles pointed at one another's cities and have come close in history to annihilating the planet through miscommunication. And I do think that has always been one of my big worries is convincing huge numbers of Americans that Russia is our enemy, that we shouldn't be talking to them, is really geopolitically dangerous. But I think Matt's point, he was very clear about that caveat, right? Like that the implications aren't as grave as what happened with Iraq, but that the recklessness and the kind of conspiracy mongering in this case was worse, maybe because it's more because cable news and the internet are now more predominant than they were 15 years ago when it was still the New York Times and the Washington Post driving and Time and Newsweek driving the Iraq stuff. But nonetheless, I think that just the general climate feels more reckless, more conspiratorial, more breathless than the run up to the Iraq war did.
You have been sympathetic over the years with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, and they clearly played a big role here as being the cutouts through which the Russians dumped the stolen emails. Are you troubled at all by WikiLeaks' role in this? So let's just divide this into two different parts. I think that as journalists, we all should have the attitude, and I think most journalists do, that if you get relevant information in the public interest, you don't care where it came from or what your source did in order to get it, right? Like, I didn't care that Edward Snowden broke the law to get these documents because they were in the public interest. The New York Times didn't care that Danny Ellsberg broke the law in order to get them the Pentagon Papers. To this day, the New York Times doesn't know who sent them Donald Trump's tax returns, whether laws were broken in order to get those tax returns, what the motives were, but they still published and reported it because it was in the public interest. So I think when WikiLeaks gets their hands on emails that shows corruption on the part of the DNC, to the point where the top five DNC officials resign or shows Donna Brazil cheating while at CNN, on behalf of the Clinton campaign to help the Sanders campaign to the point where CNN fires her, they absolutely did the right thing in publishing that information regardless of its provenance. And I think that that's what most journalists have generally that's the media's role. role. I was asking you about WikiLeaks' well, role I think, in but, getting but, stolen material from the Russians. But and then WikiLeaks is act. Yeah. But how is what WikiLeaks did any different than what the media does? They got relevant information in the public interest from a source just like they did from Chelsea Manning and in many other cases, and they published it to inform the public. I have criticism that I think a lot of that stuff should have been redacted. There's stuff in there that I would not have published and I think was immoral to publish, things about mental health struggles on the part of you know employees of the Clinton campaign, things of that nature that I think were immoral to publish. That's what Keelix's attitude is, just dump it all, and I'm against that. But the general act of publishing regardless of where they got it from or who it is who got it, I think that's exactly what journalists should do. And I believe WikiLeaks is playing the role of journalist there and has done so many times. I guess the question is, if you are being used as part of a foreign government operation, that you might want to have feel some obligation to disclose that or distance yourself from that. If it was, for instance, the CIA that was providing documents to WikiLeaks to meddle or interfere in Russian internal affairs or any other country's internal affairs, you'd probably be pretty critical of WikiLeaks blithely accepting CIA or NSA material and using it for political effect, don't you think? No. So let me, I would, I would, I mean, if the material was in the public interest, absolutely not. In fact, I think journalists have the duty to publish in all cases when they, let me ask you this question for you guys. I'm really interested in your answer genuinely. So let's just do a hypothetical. Let's say in July of 2020, we're three months, four months out of the, the election, some foreign country that hates Donald Trump, I don't know, like the Palestinians or maybe like the Ukrainians or whoever, Venezuela, has their hackers hack into, say, the accounting firm of Donald Trump and gets their hands on all of his financial documents and tax returns and decides that they want this to be public because they want to sabotage Donald Trump's reelection efforts because it's in their country's interest to do that. And they send you 
those materials and say, hey, I have these, this Pulitzer Prize winning scandal that you guys are going to be able to expose with these documents that our government hackers hacked that prove that Donald Trump is a criminal beyond what anybody ever imagined. And we have the proof of it and we're going to give it to you. Are you going to say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want that. I don't take information no. from okay, here, here, foreign governments trying to, to interfere in an election? Here's I would take it. I would take it and report it. I would take it, but do everything I could in, to ensure that I let the readers know where the material came from and the context in which I got them. Totally. Of course. I absolutely. Which is not what WikiLeaks they, did what, here. What, but, WikiLeaks yeah. never acknowledged where they got the documents. They even put up false flags suggesting they came from Seth Rich, which was a totally bogus conspiracy theory. Obviously. Uh, but, Mike, but Mike, you're you're unfairly assuming that WikiLeaks knew where it came from. I mean, you called them earlier a cutout. I do think it's very possible that the Russians had somebody that wasn't part of the Russian government take the documents and give it to WikiLeaks. Well, we, know, WikiLeaks we know from the Mueller indictment it was Guccifer 2.0, a, no, we, a Russian we, GRU agent who provided in an encrypted file all the material to WikiLeaks on July 14th, 2016. Right, but we don't know that WikiLeaks knew who that was or who, who he was on whose behalf he was working. They get anonymous submissions all the time. I think you're unfairly assuming that when Julian and whoever was working with him got that information that they knew that it had come from Russia. Now, well, I a, think real I, journalist, I mean, but, but, a real journalist but, would ask, where did you get these? I need to know how no, but, you came uh, into possession okay, I'm gonna of give this you, stolen material. I'm going to give you the proof that that's totally false. The New York Times, as I said earlier, published Donald Trump's tax returns because somebody whose identity to this day they do not know put them in the postal service and sent it to their newsroom. And that next day, David Barstow, who's won two Pulitzer Prizes and did that story, went on NPR and they said, doesn't it bother you that you just publish documents without having any idea who sent it to you, whether, how they got it and what their motives were? And he said, as a journalist, I don't care in the slightest what my source's motives are or who they are. I just care if the information I have is accurate and in the public interest. That's the only issue I care about. And I think it's kind of weird to say how hear journalists saying Julian Assange should have revealed more about the identity of his sources when normally journalists have the duty to protect the identity of their sources. Well, look, I, we, we could have an entire journalistic seminar on this very issue. I do think that there is a distinction when it's part of a foreign government uh, espionage operation that is on a different scale. But, Glenn, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I would like to continue this conversation on another uh, episode of Skullduggery. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And also, Mike, I appreciate your willingness to be so candid and honest about the stuff the media did get wrong, even on the networks that were part of the, the, the problem. So I do want to yeah, genu well, genuinely yeah. compliment we'll you for doing we'll see that. If, we'll see if Fiskoff gets invited back on those <laughs> networks. He'll be I back haven't on. Since, uh, since I said that. Since, right. since you praised me, Glenn, yeah. I have not been invited back on MSNBC. That was probably the coup de grace that ensures you will never yeah. be back on. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Thanks a lot, Glenn. All yeah. right. Got to talk to you guys. Bye. Take care. On Thursday night, I had an opportunity to interview George Papadopoulos at Politics and Prose Bookstore as he was touting his new book, Deep State Target. 
Papadopoulos, you might remember, had pled guilty about lying to the FBI about his contacts with a Russian link professor who had told him that the Kremlin had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails, information that Papadopoulos then passed along to an Australian diplomat, Alexander Downer, thereby triggering the entire Russia investigation. Papadopoulos told me that he's considering withdrawing his guilty plea. Are you going to seek to withdraw your guilty plea? I have new counsel now. Unfortunately, I felt that uh, my old counsel, while I was under a sealed indictment or whatever I was under, just never really bought into my story. Some of them viewed it as, oh, you got caught up, just plead out, and Trump is going to end up getting impeached anyway. Save Save yourself. That was the logic. And, you know, at that time... When you're facing mounting legal bills, you're 29 years old, you want to move on with your life, and you're being threatened with 35 years in prison, like they, I was, you just plead out. I mean, and, and that's one of the unfortunate aspects of our justice system, that people don't realize that many people, simply for financial reasons, plead. So yes or no, are you going to try to withdraw your guilty I'm actively, con- the, the, the part of what I wanted to explain is why I have new counsel now, and why we are actively discussing possibly withdrawing from this guilty plea without even needing a pardon, if that even comes, which I have no expectation of. Because uh, we believe that there was uh, misjustice done. In my case, I personally believe it. And I think uh, most reasonable observers of this entire story, especially once they read my book, uh, would probably agree with that. And that he's applied for a pardon to President Trump. My lawyers have formally applied for a pardon. They're involved in that discussion. It's a legal question. My lawyers are obviously looking out for my legal interests at this time. Should I be offered a pardon? I'd be honored to accept it. I don't have an expectation to uh, receive one, though. When did they apply? My understanding is they applied uh, a couple months ago, but... To the Justice Department or directly to the White House? I don't know. because they're dealing with that issue on their own. I'm not really involved in it, because like I said, I hired them to take care of those problems for me. (laughs) But uh, my understanding has been formally submitted. I think it's been circulating around the news waves that it's been submitted. So the president uh, has an unorthodox way of handing out pardons. (laughs) And if he does, uh, he will. If he doesn't, he won't. And that he now believes his entire ordeal was a setup by the deep state. When I realized that Donald Trump was going to declassify the FISA documents that will, would reveal the Australian involvement and the UK's involvement in my story, I then understood that I did never, I'd never told Alexander Downer this information. I never had a memory of telling Alexander Downer this information. Of course, when you're talking to government officials, you have to be very careful with your words and you say, I don't remember, I can't recall these type of things. But today I could state unequivocally, I had never told Alexander Downer that. And actually I've been telling uh, uh, the media that recently as well. And um, if that- Which is different than what's in your book. What was that? Well, I mean, your book said you don't remember. Now you're saying unequivocally, well, the I bu- didn't. Well, the, the book also was, was written before specific information came out that, do- that Donald Trump would be declassifying this information. But I'm and, not sure and, how that affects and, your memory. I mean, it, your memory it, it, is it, your memory. 
my memory is that this memory does not exist in my mind, that I ever told Alexander Downer this. Hence, that never happened. And the same information was transmitted to the FBI, the same information was transmitted to Bob Mueller, the same information was transmitted to Congress, and the same information is being transmitted so today. So if, if this is true, the Australian government is lying, Downer is lying, the FBI is lying, and Robert Mueller is lying. What's so hard to believe about that? Well, What's so hard a lot to... of people who are lying, and I mean, to be fair, you're the convicted liar. But wait, but, but they're the gov responsible okay, government but, officials. But who are these government officials? The ones who are under investigation themselves currently, the ones who have been demoted from their jobs, or the ones who have been fired, or the ones who uh, will likely be referred for criminal indictment themselves as far as I'm um, concerned by Congress for lying and other crimes. These are not choir boys, Michael. Um, you know, so let's put things in context of what kind of people we're dealing with here. Thanks to Glenn Greenwald, Ben Wittes, and George Papadopoulos for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. Now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.